Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the University of Johannesburg Center for African Foreign Policy and Diplomacy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, it is an excellent afternoon indeed,、uh, in part because today is、uh, Sunday. It marks a milestone for、uh, the China Africa project.、Uh, we crossed one hundred thousand likes on Facebook, and you know, Gobis, it's one of those things where you just kind of pinch yourself because you know, a year ago when we launched the Facebook page, we couldn't possibly have imagined that today we'd, within a year, we'd be at a hundred thousand likes. And I think it's really a testament to、uh, not you and I actually, but really the community that's part. Participating in the in the debates and the engagement that's that's happening and the discussion that's happening, so、uh, you know I guess it's just it's really just incredible. Absolutely, and you know, kind of more and more, it's it's so gratifying to see that people are are addressing each other and having conversations on the page. You know,、um, it's it's really fantastic to see. I'm I'm so grateful to everyone. And、uh, really, what's amazing about the page, and we've said this on a couple different occasions, is who the audience is. And you know, the vast majority of the people who are on this page are, are young people, and, and that's what's really so exciting. This is an audience that people you know write off all the time that it's difficult for them to engage. They don't take them seriously. Uh, but 65% of our 100,000 followers on Facebook are, are under the age of 30, and, and the vast majority of those come from North Africa, South Asia, and Sub-Saharan Africa. So this is a really great debate. Obviously, one place that's missing from our discussion is China, but there's really nothing we can do about that, Kobe, simply because Facebook, of course, is not available behind the Great Firewall. So hopefully, one day, one day, we'll be able to get the China Africa project、uh, over the Great Firewall. So、uh, also. I want to welcome a lot of、uh, new listeners to our podcast. We had a fantastic week,、uh, over twenty-one thousand listens to our show last week. So really, just we're humbled that there's so much interest in the project. And so,、uh, so really, welcome to all of you if this is your first time listening.、Uh, the format: what we do is every week we take on a different topic. Uh, and then we post three times a week, actually. So usually on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, we post a new edition of the podcast.、Uh, today we're actually going to focus on a little bit more of an esoteric issue. This is a little more ethereal. Normally, what we do is we kind of take a news issue out of the week,、uh, but instead we're going to focus on what is the African economic model. And this is an issue that's come up in the past few weeks, in part because Dr. Kingsley Mugalu, who happens to also be the deputy governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria, he's written a new book called Emerge. Africa, and he's on a book tour, and he was most recently in Washington, and and in Washington he kind of raised eyebrows a little bit, in part because、uh, he's really a big critic of the Western aid model, which has defined so much of Western foreign policy towards Africa. But at the same time, as we know from、uh, the Nigerian Central Bank Governor,、uh, Dr. Magalu's boss,、uh, Sanusi Lamido, there's not a lot of fan for the Chinese model either. So the question comes. What is the African model? So, in order to kind of set up our discussion today, Kobus, let's let's listen、uh, to a couple sound bites from Dr. Magalo himself.、Uh, the first, and this is his most salient point that he makes. He says that the African Renaissance or this economic emergent Africa、uh, might be a little bit premature, in part because when you add up all 54 economies, the, the GDP of all 54 economies. It still comes out to be less than the city of Chicago. So, at the end of the day, Africa's economy is still very, very small. Africa contributes three percent of world trade. Three percent. Five percent of total global foreign direct investment is in Africa, and when you look at these two figures, they are both very small. 
So the key question now is how do you actually generate economic growth? And Kobus, you and I have talked a number of different times about this question of an ideological battle that's going on. Uh, Dr. Magalo actually agrees as well. I'd like to think that he's been listening to the podcast, but maybe not. Uh, and uh, But he talks about that there is a struggle going on between you know the Western model in Africa as well as the Asian model. In, in many ways, he says both have merits, but they may not be appropriate for Africa itself. But the Asian model and the Western model, they're both, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with, with those models. One model may be wrong from the perspective of one worldview, but that's precisely the point I'm making, that there is a clash of worldviews out there. And what's Africa's worldview? And there is the fundamental question, Kobus. What's Africa's worldview? Okay, so there we've heard it from Dr. Magalu himself, uh, where he says both have merits. We've talked about this quite a bit over the past, I'd say, two years during the show, about this question of what is the strong African economic model that can stand up to China, to the West, in order to define its own path. When you hear about the rhetoric of, of an African model, what, what, comes to your, what comes to mind for you? Two things. Um, in the first place, I, I'm, I tend to agree with him that, um, that it, it's impossible for Africa to just simply, you know, kind of slap a different region's development model, um, on and then, you know, kind of run with it. You know, kind of those, those development models grew organically from certain, certain realities. Um, and I tend to agree with him that, um, that there is need, a mental shift is needed, um, you know, kind of in, in order to, to just kind of orient Africans towards developing, you know, um, and, you know, I also agree with him that, it, that, you know, kind of what that would be, what kind of particular kind of attitude that would be needs to, needs to be homegrown. Um, you know, kind of the, the wider issue, I think, is that in a way he is still following the Chinese model because what, you know, kind of what he, or then the East Asian model, because it seems, you know, kind of to, to, he, he seems to kind of advocate something that, that Japan did in the late 19th century, which is to orient the entire state and the entire national culture towards economic growth. Um, you know, kind of, and to move, to, to try and jump from a kind of, from a, a an agricultural system towards an, an industrialized system. And he, he himself is pushing that very strongly, saying that Africa needs to move away from agriculture into, to industry. So in a way, he might still be following, in, you know, kind of the Asian model, but in a, in a kind of a wider, more philosophical sense. Great. Let me ask you two questions now. One of the, the things that he says, he says, Africans have not developed because Africans have not agreed to develop. And that's a little bit what you talked about with this change in mindset and perception. Uh, but that also makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up a little bit because it really feels a little bit about blaming the victim. And this was actually uh, very similar to the lines that was used in colonialism, which is, uh, you know, these people don't, and I say these people in quotes, uh, you know, they're poor because they, they want to be poor. They don't work hard. They're lazy. Whatever you want to fill in the blank on that. But it does in, in some ways have a feeling of blaming the victim. Uh, of course, he's not saying that, but could that be misinterpreted that way that, you know, this is up to Africans to make the choice? And if they don't make the choice, what does that say about Africans? Yeah, I think, um, you know, kind of at the moment, what, what I've read, um, I, I'm looking very, really looking forward to reading is actually is a book itself, because what I've heard so far tends to be these very these kind of blank statements where that you can project anything on, um, you know, so he could easily mean that Africans, 
you know, that they don't choose to develop in the sense that they don't start little businesses, maybe. He might also say that they're not choosing to develop because they're not enforcing, you know, kind of uh, keeping their own leaders' noses to the grindstone or, or you know, kind of um, demanding better governance. It, it could mean anything. Um, you know, so I, I tend to agree with you that, that there's a danger of blaming the victim. It also tends to ignore certain kind of structural um, structural inequalities that, that set up the world economy. Um, although he does he does refer, refer to that in other senses, in the sense that he is, is quite interestingly quite critical of globalization. Um, and he comes out against saying that Africans shouldn't be, essentially saying Africans shouldn't be A, buying from, you know, kind of luxury and, and globalized products from overseas and also should should set up tariff systems again and, and you know, close their economies and, and concentrate on, on local manufacturing, wow. which, you know, obviously that, that's going to bring a lot of criticism from, among others, you know, the IMF. But it's not even criticism as well. I mean, that would, that's the classic import substitution policies that were enacted in the 70s and 80s, which had, you know, came to, to dreadful consequence for people forcing up inflation uh, and, and really exactly. slowing, you know, and slow, so that that is a model to me is it does not work. Uh, you know, so I'll, I'll drift from him on that one. But, uh, you know, where, where he and I both agree and you agree as well, leadership is obviously critical. But this is where I run into the problem of the term Africa. And it's a problem that we've come up against time and time again, which is to, to clump all 54 countries into a unified single entity uh, is counterproductive in my view because you're going to see some regions you know, that are going to do better than others. Uh, Egypt is part of Africa. Egypt right now is in a tailspin. Uh, the DRC is part of Africa. Joseph Kabila is not the man who's going to reform the economy. This is not a man who gives a crap about anybody but his own tribe and his own people uh, and, and, and enriching himself. Uh, this is not a man who's, a, who's going to govern and imp- improve transparency and really help uh, you know, the DRC uh, pull its way out of the quagmire that it in. And, and examples like this can be repeated over and over. So that's why I think at one point the idea that we, we have to find a better word than Africa because I think that's just absolutely counterproductive. Now, let's get to the, the, to the Chinese part because that's, of course, why you and I are here. Uh, one of his main staples that he goes after, and he brought this up in Washington, uh, is he really believes that aid and foreign aid hurts growth and development and really retards economic development. And this is really an anathema to the people inside the Beltway, uh, who there's a multi-billion dollar aid industry that you know I absolutely abhor. Uh, he agrees with it as at the end of the day, it creates, and this is his words, not mine, a master-servant relationship. Um, and that that is what harkens back to the colonial I- imbalances. Interesting because his boss, Sanusi Lamido, uh, is famous for going on the record of accusing the Chinese of, well, engaging in neocolonial behavior of their own by export by importing raw materials from Africa and exporting back finished goods. So here we are, Kobus, at the intersection where, you know, one accuses the West of a certain type of colonialism and the other accuses China of a certain kind of colonialism. Okay, question number one for you. At what point do we stop using the word colonialism? I mean, you know, just to me, it just, this is what, this this is getting annoying because it just pulls Africa down, it pulls the continent back into uh, an antiquated model. And, And two, if there is such strong kind of criticism on both sides, we come back to the fundamental question, what is the alternative? 
Yeah, like I sometimes get the feeling with the use of colonialism in African discourse that it's a little bit like the way Fox News uses socialism in the sense that no one really knows what it used to mean. Um, and, uh, you know, the, you know, if you can, you can say colonialism and actually mean, un, you know, un, un, equal levels of development, you know, kind of, but I mean, those are not two, those are not the same things. I mean, the one grows out of the other, but it's, it's not the same thing. Um, I, yeah, you know, it's 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 such a difficult question because um you know the the one of the big issues is um if you if you're criticizing like he is criticizing the concept of skills transfer you know he, he's he's quite critical against it and saying that it doesn't work it doesn't really happen um and that africa needs to develop its own own economies and in its own technologies um you know kind of the own economies based on its own technologies um then sure you know kind of you, you can make that point but then at the same time um you can't be then you know kind of turning around and criticizing china for not you know, going for only exporting raw materials because you are then you set yourself the task to develop an economy based on your own technology, which you haven't done yet. So, what else is China supposed to be importing from Africa except raw materials? That's the only thing Africa is offering at the moment. So, um, you know, it's it's a little bit like you know, you know, the, I feel that the argument falls down a little bit there somewhere. Well, so if we look at the third way, which we'll call the African way for now, for lack of a better reference. Uh, one one economy that stands out is Paul Kagame and in Rwanda. Uh, Kagame has done an amazing job at turning around the economy. You've got an infrastructure that is that is growing very well. You've got uh, data networks that are strong. Uh, you know you've had stability since the the genocide in the, in the 90s. Uh, now on the flip side, you've also got a man who has been accused, rightfully in my opinion, of horrendous human rights violations, of civil and political violations. So the question is, can you make everybody happy? So if you have a third way, uh, that is, will you appeal and appease and please the likes of the World Bank, the IMF, the United Nations, and the United States, and the EU? Or uh, will you, you know, have a way that at, tends to kind of tilt more towards the Chinese way, which is an emphasis on social and economic development at the expense of civil and political rights? And the question is, from you know, that I have, and I've just been wondering about this, and I don't know if we can answer it here tonight, is what leverage do these small African countries have? Michael Sada in Zambia has brought this up, saying, listen, you know, we're commodity exporters. They, if, if the Chinese are anybody else wants to go to another country to find copper, they can. So our leverage is quite minimal in this regard. And so when you talk about skills transfer and you talk about technology transfers, I wonder, you know, if the if the price goes up too high, any foreign investor can just kind of go, well, listen, we'll go find it somewhere else. So how do you think, you know, African governments and leaders overcome this obstacle? Do they just bite the bullet, hope for the best and start insisting on skills and technology transfer? Or do they actually lay down the line? I have to actually agree with him a little bit. I'm not sure that skills and technology transfer actually happens or what it would even really be. Um, you know, if, if you're looking at, at a situation where you some some foreign some you know kind of first world country is now manufacturing in your country what, what are you expecting the the kind of skills transfer to actually be like handing over of blueprints or like patent you know files or you know it's, it's i'm not sure what 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 is really meant by that it, it seems to be such a buzzword to me well it is but you know the chinese do represent a good model in this respect they did force foreign companies as part of their investments 
to invest in university research institutes. They force them to hire, uh, you know, certain caliber of labor, then provide them training. Uh, they did force, you know, they had a lot of conditions on, on, but of course they had the leverage, which was the China market and the scale of manufacturing that they were able to, to compete upon. Um, you know, so skills transfer does occur. Now, in the Chinese context, it's also taken and stolen. <laughs> so, you know, the blueprints oftentimes are taken. That's a kind of a, a, an, an implicit skills transfer. But I think in some ways the Chinese are, do represent a model of what it is to be able to, you know, hold down the line and say, if you want access to a market, then you must do A, B, and C. That's one thing. The part that I have a problem with is when we talk about, you know, you hear a lot of criticism, even on our Facebook page, well, the Chinese and others should be manufacturing in Africa. Well, without a proper supply chain, without a regulatory mechanism, without, you know, a legal system uh, to protect your intellectual property, it becomes very complicated to do manufacturing in countries that are underdeveloped. So that so we run into these these intersections again, which kind of make us looking left and looking right about which way is the best way for the African model. So some final thoughts about what you see, particularly in South Africa in in in, in the intellectual circles. What what do people say? You know, what's the thought on what actually is an African model, or is this just something that you know people like us talk about, but on the ground it doesn't really exist? I think that's one of the big big issues is that that Africa is still in in the midst of trying to articulate what that actual that African model would be, um, and you know obviously in you you know kind of for example from the southern African you know position you've had um, uh, you know focus going on going back a decade um, on on things like the African Renaissance and also you know kind of setting up mechanisms like peacemaking and and um, peacekeeping mechanisms and so on within Africa. I think um, at the same time you f- you find you know that that once you try and set down once you try and pin down what an African development model would be, then you suddenly you know kind of come face to face with the fact that there are lots of different Africas, and you know kind of South Africa's you know position within Africa is a good example. You know like you can you can talk a lot about African manufacturing and mean you know kind of that that you you know kind of you know poor African countries need to need to set up factories. And, and, and start selling to themselves, and then also to their to their subregions. What you frequently find is that you know, kind of, as you move up in Africa, South African products are already there. South African chains have already expanded up, you know, kind of all the way, you know, kind of past the Sahara. So, and I mean, that's African manufacturing. It's African products and and, and regional networks. But I mean, it still is quite quite unequal, you know. Um, so you know, so so I think. Um, it's it becomes very complicated, you know, kind of that to not simply, re, you know, kind of replace, you know, the the West with South Africa, for example, or or with Nigeria, you know, as Nigeria expands, you know. But he also highlights how, you know, because he comes from Nigeria, the difficulty of of reform, and you know, Nigeria famously two years ago tried to implement a reduction of the fuel subsidies, which they were forced uh, to take back, and 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 really at the end of the day, if we're going to see and the emergence of a model, it's going to depend on reform, and reform is extraordinarily difficult. I mean, imagine in a place like Zimbabwe, uh, where you've got a leader who's been in power for decades. He's not going to change, um, you know, despite
despite what the critics may say, the necessary changes in order to to really you know energize these economies. So leadership is really the key issue, and that's what we keep coming back to. So what do you think about this? We'd love to hear your comments. Again, our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, now over 100,000 followers on the page with a really exciting uh, conversation and discussion that's going on. We talk about these issues every single day, so we'd love to hear your feedback and your thoughts on what is and what comprises the African model, or is there such a thing? Is there such a thing as a pan-Africa? Can countries as diverse as Egypt and Tunisia, Malawi, Zimbabwe, Nigeria all get together and agree on, on any common trade standards, any common tariff standards? Is this a possibility? Is it a possibility that you can see one day them getting together and being negotiating with the Chinese? And is or is the Chinese going? Are the Chinese going to take advantage of the differences and negotiate country by country? These are the topics that we want to talk to you about on our Facebook page, Cobus. Uh, in addition to our Facebook page, where you and I are on there every day, where are some other places that people can find you on the web? Um, they can find me on Twitter at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Uh, also on uh, Google Plus at gplus.to slash Olander. You can just look up uh, China Africa Project on Google Plus. Uh, for those of you who speak Chinese, we've got a Weibo page at weibo.com slash zhongfeixiangmu. And finally, if you want to follow our podcast, the best way, of course, to do it is on iTunes, uh, where you can just look up the China Africa Project. We've got a mobile app for Android and for iOS, as well as this podcast. And we're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and the BlackBerry Network. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again uh, with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. <laughs> <laughs>